Welcome back to the program. Too often when we talk about issues of race and poverty, it's always in a very abstract way. We all too quickly lose sight of how these realities impact people's lives. We're going to talk about that in a very profound and powerful way today with my guest, Jasmine Ward. She received her MFA from the University of Michigan. She's been a Stegner Fellow at Stanford, a visiting writer-in-residence at the University of Mississippi, and currently Assistant Professor of Creative Writing at the University of South Alabama. She's the author of previous novels, including Salvage the Bones. It is my pleasure to have Jasmine Ward back on this program to talk about her new memoir, Men We Reaped. Jasmine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Delight to have you here. Tell us a little bit about this small town in Mississippi where you grew up. So my hometown is named uh, DeLille, and um, I haven't looked up the recent census numbers, but it's really small. At the (laughs) most, it might have a 1,000 people in it, um, maybe two. Um, you know, the part of the community where I live is um, mostly poor, working class, mostly black. Um, you know, everyone here is related in some way or another uh, because, you know, generations of families have lived here, you know, for, you know, as long as we can remember. Um, so it's, a, you know, it's a, a close sort of tight-knit normally sleepy community, um, which, and, you know, it's one of the reasons that I chose to write the book because, you know, the question that I wanted to ask was why, you know, why would an epidemic of young black men dying the way that they did happen in a place like this, which is, you know, the total opposite of, um, you know, of, I guess, places that people usually think about epidemics like this happening. Mm-hmm. Talk a little about these these five men, the deaths that and and the losses that you experienced that came from this small town. So, um, so five young black men that I you know that I knew um, that I was friends with died um, between 2000 and 2004. Um, the first was my brother. He died in October of 2000, actually. Um, and he was hit from behind by a drunk driver. Um, the next young man that died uh, was um, my friend. Um, his name was Ronald. He uh, committed death by suicide, or he died by suicide. Um, he shot himself. The third young man um, that died was actually my cousin, um, CJ. He was in a car accident. The car that he was in actually hit a train. There are three people in that car, and he did not survive. The other two did. And the fourth young man um, that died was my friend Damon. He uh, was the only one uh, that was murdered. Someone waited for him to get home from work and shot him in his front yard. And the police haven't saw. They've never saw this murder. And the fifth young man that died um, was my my friend Raj. And he actually um, had a genetic heart condition, um, so he died of a heart attack. Um, but you know, some people, which some people think, um, was sort of aggravated by uh, his drug use. How did you begin to link these five deaths? To begin to understand that there were common threads and common themes. That while these might seem like isolated incidents, that there were some very specific things that, that linked them all together? Um, I had to write about it, actually. 
because I didn't, you know, at the time when I was living through it, of course, I couldn't link any of it. I was just, um, you know, overwhelmed um, you know, by the, the by how close their how close their deaths were, how sudden they were, um, and um, and just sort of reeling from that from that from that loss. And um, and so I wasn't able to put anything together, of course, you know, during those years. And then even afterwards, I mean, it, well, I didn't begin to write this book until 2010, um, perhaps because I needed that that distance, you know, from from the from 2000 to 2004. And so when I began writing the book, I um I, you know, and this took a couple of drafts. You know, the first draft I didn't I didn't connect everything very well, um, and but then. As I worked my way through draft after draft, then I, um, I, you know, I, I, to me, I, when I looked at the entire picture, when I wrote about their lives and their deaths, and then wrote about my life and my family's life, right, as a sort of context to understand their lives and their deaths, I saw that, you know, that their deaths seemed to be the symptom of a great, of a greater problem in our culture. Um, you know, in American culture, that they weren't these isolated events, but that they were, um, you know, that, that that they were sort of the fallout um, of a of a of a society and and of a you know of a society that's you know that's been that has this inequality, you know, at its very heart, right? That 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 you know that has this history of you know of racism of economic Disadvantage of um, you know of 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 a of a mindset right an idea that black people are inherently worth less like that that's at the heart of um, of this. The other thing that that lies within this is this sense of the impact of rural poverty. Oftentimes, when we think of poverty today. And that's partly as a result of, of the urbanization of the country in the sense that more and more people are moving to cities. We, we think of poverty in an urban context. We've lost sight of, in many respects, the, the power, the degradation of rural poverty. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's pervasive. I mean, I, I, think that, I think that you're totally correct that we have lost sight of it. I mean, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it, I think that you know, it's a different picture, right? Because, um, you know, because it's, you know, these communities are much more isolated, I guess. And so they, I think that it, um, you know, that it makes sort of climbing out of that, you know, climbing out of poverty, I think it makes it harder for, for people in rural communities, um, in part because, you know, the families, have lived in poverty for you know for like as I said for generations, and so you know when when that's the way that things have been, it's hard to fight your way out. Um, and then I think too that the economy, or the or the, or the local economies in places like this, that that they're failing. You know this this group you know this group of people because they're not even providing ways for um you know for people to climb out of poverty um just those those opportunities you know aren't there you know and i write about it that that in the book because 
I feel like I saw some of that in, you know, in how I, you know, watched my, you know, my father, um, you know, sort of like lose the options that he had for, um, you know, for, for, for gainful, you know, good work um, that he could support a family on. And then, of course, when my brother, you know, came of age and he began working, it was even much worse for him, you know, that there's, the opportunities are much narrower here, I think, because of the dearth of, you know, of, of, of jobs. What role does, does a sense of loss of hope play in all of this? Because there is this deep-rooted sense of hopelessness. Well, I think that, you know, that, um, that, that all those larger things that I'm talking about, right? So this, this history of, of, of racism, right, and of sort of racial strife in the South, right, that we grow up with, that we that we know intimately, right? There's, and then there's, you know, this history of poverty, right, or, or lasting over generations. And then I feel like that there's there are these messages, right, in in popular culture now in the present day that black people, young black people, encounter all the time that tell them that they're less, right, that their lives are worth less. Um, you know, say in, say with, you know, I keep bringing this up, but with Trayvon Martin, right? I mean, one of the, one of the messages that was communicated, right, when um, Zimmerman was acquitted, right, one of the message that, messages that was communicated to young black people, in particular young black men, was that their lives are worth nothing, you know, that, that they can die, right, um, you know, at the hands of another person and that no one will be held accountable for their death. And, you know, that, that they're that worthless, you know, no one, no one will be held accountable. And, um, and I think that, you know, that young, you know, that young black people and that black people in general, you know, they they see these things, you know, they're perceptive. They see these things and that, and that this, you know that history, right? And that, and and of course, in these present messages that they encounter, that they bear fruit in the present, in in a real sense of hopelessness, um, where you know where many just can't, you know, can't conceive of, you know, of, of a better tomorrow. I mean, I you know I write about my cousin, cousin um, CJ, and 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 that was really very true of him. Um, you know, he. He didn't think that he'd live to be 30. You know, he always said, I'm not going to be here long. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a very, um, he made a very fatal outlook on life. And then, of course, you know, my, my, well, my friend Ronald, I mean, he committed suicide. He, I mean, that was a deep sense of hopelessness. He could see no hope in tomorrow. There was no point in continuing. Um, and so he killed himself. I mean, I, I think, I think, and I don't think that they're anomalies. I think that, that this is something, unfortunately, that is, um, that, you know, that, that, that is true, right? Of, of, you know, young black culture and of, you know, black culture in general, that there is a sense of hopelessness that, that is really pervasive. How do you see your own experience in the context of this as somebody that had hope and that was really able to escape that environment? You know, it was, well, it, it was, it was very hard for me to do that. Um, partly, I was able to do that because I, because I, because I, 
fell in love with books, you know, and because I was foolish enough to, I was foolish enough to have a dream, you mm-hmm. know. Partly I was able to do that, um, you know, be, be, beyond, like even though I, the evidence of real life at the, when I was younger sort of told me that it was foolish for me to have that dream, I still had it, right? So partly I was able to do, I was able to do what I've done because of that. Another reason that I was able to do what I've done was because I was lucky. You know, I was lucky enough to have the mother that I had who worked really very hard um, and who sacrificed a lot um, in order to provide the opportunities that she did for me. Um, and so, and, and, and throughout my life, I've had these, you know, I've, I've been lucky, you know, say like winning the National Book Award or, you know, getting into the University of Michigan, into the MFA program, or, you know, getting into the colleges that I did when I was applying as an undergrad. I've been lucky. Um, and then, and then, you know, and then I think that, that, you know, something that people don't realize, you know, when, when they, when they, when, when they sort of think about my story, right, and how far I've come is the fact that, um, you know, is the fact that I, that that this is very, you know, hard won for me. It was a very hard fight for me to get where I am. Um, and that I came dangerously close to being as nihilistic um, as, you know, as my peers were and to just giving up several times. Um, and, um, but I, but I didn't. And I don't know if that's because, and I don't know why I didn't. Maybe because I'm really stubborn, but <laughs> but it was it wasn't easy for me, you know, to um to retain that sense of hope and to keep fighting. Um, it wasn't easy at all. What sense do you think that your experience provides as a beacon of hope for those that continue to be in towns like this in Mississippi? Well, I and you know and that's so one of the reasons that I decided to move back home, you know, to my hometown, to Galil, is because at the least, you know, I want to, I want to be a model, you know, for, for, for the, for the younger kids, you know, for people in my hometown who are coming up and who are still, you know, struggling with the same things that me and my peers struggled with. And I want to, I mean, at the very least, just show them that it's possible, you know, it's possible to, you know, if you, if you're lucky, if you work hard enough, if you're, you know, stubborn enough, it's possible to succeed in the ways that I have, um, you know, to to succeed in in the ways that I have, because I think that there's power just in that, you know, that there's a message there, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, in, in, yeah, there's just a message there. Um, so I hope, you know, that, 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 you know, that people, not only in my hometown, but, you know, in communities like this across the country, if they encounter Men We Read, if they read the book, or if they even just hear about it, or will get that, you know, from the book, that it's possible. Because I think sometimes, you know, that, that, that that's what you need in order to hold on to hope, you know, just a sense that of possibility. And do you think that it's harder, significantly harder for men in that situation? Um, I think that it's, I think that it's, I do think that it's somewhat harder. 
you know i mean i think that it's that it's it's hard for women too but it's harder in a different way um you know i that threat of violence is there too you know for violence and death is there too for young women i think that the thing that that what is different between the two experiences um is that there seems is that is that entry into like into the drug trade um whether that's you know coke or crack or these days meth that it's not that for most women here it that doesn't seem to be it's just it's not an accepted possibility whereas for young men it's um unfortunately it presents itself as a very easy choice what role do you think drugs play in these situations well i think you know in one respect um i guess i just referred to it but that they of course they provide an alternative economy you know and and i think that when you <laughs> when you grow up um, in a place like this, and when you see your choices sort of narrowed, um, you know, drastically narrowed, um, that that unfortunately that that drug economy becomes, you know, it becomes an easy choice, and it becomes you know something that's like, you know, that's feasible, um, at least for the present, the immediate present. I also think that that you know that drugs play an unfortunate role. Um, in in mental health, really, I think that that a lot of people in these communities um, that 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 a lot of them self medicate, you know, with you know with drugs, and that's out, you know that I'm including alcohol in that equation. Um, I and you know and I and I speak as a you know as a person who I felt you know as a person who also did that. I feel like I did that at one time. You know that I was self medicating too. You know, trying to trying to you know just ease that you know the the pain of living in a place like this, you know, and and be and unfortunately, you know, being very clear eyed about about the choices, you know, that that you know that I was, you know, or not choices, but being very clear eyed about the forces. <laughs> that will bear that bear down on a place like this, and that bear down on a community like this. Um, and I think, in large part, you know, self-medicating to deal with the attempt to deal with my grief. When you look at whites growing up in in similar situations, in similar degrees of poverty in rural areas like this, what do you see as as a fundamental difference? What role does poverty play versus what role race plays? Well, I think that the big difference um, is that is that you know there um, that that you know by default that poor whites are on the um, are on the right side of that equation, you know, concerning like the history of racism, right, and the history of like prejudice and Jim Crow, and and, and so therefore they're on the right side of the equation, you know, they're on the the side of the equation where, where, you know, where they're not given that, where history doesn't tell them and then the present doesn't tell them that, 
they are worthless based on the color of their skin, right? And based on, you know, their family and their heritage and where they come from. And I think that that's, you know, that, that, that's an important part of that equation. Um, and I think that that, you know, that that message, right, that, that, um, that black people receive all the time, especially here in the South. I mean, I'm not saying that they don't receive, that they don't, they're not aware of it every, anywhere else. They are. Um, but I think it, it's especially heavy in the South. Um, you know, and, and of course, you know, poor whites, that's, they don't have to deal with that. You know, that, that, that's not an extra pressure. Um, you know, that, that added pressure that, you know, that, Black people do have to contend with. How did the discoveries and the realizations that we've been talking about that you came to on this quest and in writing Men We Reap, to what extent do you think that that will impact you as you go about your novels and you go about your understanding of these areas? No, I um, this was the hardest thing I've ever written, you know, this book, Men We Reap. But it's also, um, you know, it. I think that it taught me a lot about myself, about um, about the community that I live in, about you know, about American, you know, society. Um, so I think that it, you know, it's really, it's really made me aware in a different way, you know, that I was, I think I was only dimly aware um, of the ways that, that, you know, that all these things are interconnected before I wrote the book. And I'm much more clearly aware of how, of how, you know, how these things are connected now. Um, and I, and I think that, that this, that writing Men We Reap sort of reaffirmed my commitment to writing about the community that I write about or, writing about, you know, poor black southern people or, you know, southern people or, you know, poor people, um, just in general. Um, it just, you know, sort of made me, you know, for me, it made me, you know, because that's sort of a responsibility to write about the people that I write about. So it just made me, made me feel that I'm doing the right, that, that this is something good that I've decided to do and that, you know, and that, and that hopefully that it will have some, it'll have some larger impact, um, and, and, and maybe work to, you know, work towards changing some of this. Jasmine Ward, her book is Men We Reaped. It's her recent memoir. It is just out from Bloomsbury. Jasmine, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. No, thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 